So, um, today, my task is to transition us from Acts 20, 17 to 38, where we've been, to the book of Ephesians. Okay, so Scott's going to begin next week with the book of Ephesians, and today we are going to um, see Ephesus, this city, as a footprint of grace in the timeline of history. And so if you care, Ephesus is right up there. Um, so what we're going to do today, to begin, is something that is, I guess, maybe out of the norm for us here in America, here at uh, Enid America, in Enid MB Church. Um, but it would have been exactly what happened in the church of Ephesus around 62 AD. They would have got the letter from Paul, delivered by the hand of Tychicus, and they would have read the whole thing. So, out of the norm for us, we're going to buckle in and we're going to read all of Ephesians, just like a letter. Uh, letters are meant to be read as a whole. They're not meant to be read in bits and pieces. So, if you want to follow along, I'll be in the ESV. If you're in another version, you might, that might be a little trippy for you. So, um, just listen. <clears throat> Ephesians. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his own will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him also, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our, of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus um, and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you all in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Christ was given to the church, which is his body, the, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and of our mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. We are actually his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, the Jews, <coughs> which is made in the flesh by the hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. But now, 
Christ Jesus, who was, um, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through this cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So, <clears throat> so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, build on the foundation of the apostles and built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. For this reason, I, Paul, I'm a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have briefly written what we've just read. When you read this, you will perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, that it, as it has now been revealed to the holy apostles and the prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan and the mystery hidden from ages in God, who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. There are other rulers in the heavenly places, and that is at least a third of them are in rebellion to the ones who did follow Christ, God's angels, his messengers, and Satan is the leader of that crew. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom he, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that has surpassed the knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us, the Spirit of God, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility, with gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? Um, that he had also descended in the lower regions of the earth. He descended, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. And then he go back, goes back to his original thought. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, and the evangelists the shepherds and the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all maintain uh, or attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature manhood, to the measure of the stature uh, of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness or deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth to one another in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, for whom, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, with, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. 
Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as Gentiles in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, to greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that's not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off the old man, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, putting Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the, fee- let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with, every- with anyone who is in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for the building up of... Um, for building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by, excuse me, by whom you were sealed by the day of redemption, for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God, as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among uh, saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, or crude joking, which is out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. Let no one deceive you with empty words, but because of these things, the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of these things that they do in secret. But when, any, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anyone that be, any, anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but wise, making the best use of your time because the days are evil. Therefore don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be drunk or filled with the Spirit, addressed one, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of a reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is, 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 is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the blood, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any other thing, that he might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are all members of his body. Therefore, a man should leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, if you don't get that, let each one of you love his wife. I added that if you don't get that. Um, let each one of you love his wife Um, as he would love himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with promise, that it may go well with you, and you may live long in the land. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would obey Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as, the Lord, as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, 
This he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and against cosmic powers um, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you are able to extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you also may know how I am and what I'm doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister of the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that, we, that he may encourage your hearts. Peace to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with you all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. So, that was the letter that came to Ephesus about 62 AD. What we're going to do, that actually, um, just to give you some clarity to the, to the history of Ephesus, that is about the center point of its impact on the world stage. Ephesus expands uh, earlier than the 7th century BC and later than the 7th century AD as a city or a conglomeration of peoples. But as an impact on the world stage and as a central point to um, trade and shipping, Ephesus was on the world stage from 7th century BC to 7th century AD. 62 AD, the gospel comes in letter form from Paul in the follow up to a missionary journey. So, what we're going to do today, we've got a couple of goals. Um, first, I'm going to look at what God has done in the span of history through the lens of Ephesus. What has God done um, as well, uh, narrowly, through the purposes of God in the church at Ephesus? Okay, so that's two, two things. And then another overlay um, that we'll put in there is what are the comparisons of our church and the church of Ephesus? What about the then and the now. How do we make those two things come together? How do we bridge between Paul's letter to a group of Christians thousands of years ago to now, hearing the letter ourselves? And so, in short, I want us to see the hand of God at work. And you might say, um, that's pretty simple. Well, it is simple, but let's look at it with a couple different lenses, some more complex. Timeline of Ephesus. Okay, so what I want to do here is I'm going to zip through um, some major points in the history of Ephesus. I want us to hear um, some of the themes um, that we had when we read Ephesians. I want you to hear those things pop up when you see God's hand as a footprint of grace in the timeline of history. Some of those things like the gospel is a gospel of grace. The gospel uh, is to the praise of God's glorious grace. The gospel was brought to us in love through the person of Jesus Christ. The gospel of grace is not limited to one people, but to all peoples in the world in Christ. Jesus Christ has begun a new workmanship out of this, these new recipients of grace in order to put his glory on display to the, to the watching world. This gracious gospel transformed the life of the church through the power of his Holy Spirit. This work of the Holy Spirit looks totally different than the old way of living. The gospel of grace is for the joys, difficulties, uh, um, uh, joys and difficulties of marriage and of life, parenting, work life, mission, for the salvation of God on display. God, the sovereign one of the universe, is about de disadvantaging himself to make his bride into a spotless, radiant, and pure bride. God will have glory through his church. Before we start with this outline, I want to read you again a section that I read last week um, that we prayed 
And I want to hear the personal, I want you to hear the personal call of Paul from this little section. And we'll begin this timeline. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and the revelation of the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, that you, um, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, what are the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. So, we're going to see... Ephesus as a footprint of grace in the timeline of history. So, I'm sorry at first that this is so small. I did not come in and preview on Saturday night. I'm sorry. So, if you can't read it, you're going to have to trust me. 7th century BC, first major impact of uh, Ephesus on the timeline of history. Lydian kings get together, establish uh, a city-state kind of group. Um, so, it's got major Greek influence at that point. 560, fast forward. Um, the Greeks resist a guy by the name of Cyrus, you've heard of him before, who allows them to exist instead of taking, um, and taking them and crushing them as a city. He decides to just go around their back and take the whole Anatolia. Cyrus the Great, what did he do? He sent a man back to Israel to rebuild his God city, right? Gave him resources, gave him letters, and said, hey, you can rebuild, and guess what? You can't stop these people, and you're going to actually pay for their stuff. You're going to give them uh, the wood they need. You're going to give them the resources they need. You're going to give them the food they need while they're building. Cyrus, that's the guy. Cyrus establishes, allows Ephesus to remain established instead of crushing them at their resistance. He just takes all the area around them and says, you're mine anyways. And so what is God doing? God's establishing his purpose in history. 356. One of the ancient wonders of the world. Temple of Artemis. Seven ancient wonders of the world. So the Temple of Artemis was huge. It was phenomenal in, in architecture then. And in 356, it was first destroyed by fire. So it was around before that. Not exactly sure um, when. <coughs> 281 BC. There's a theater that was built which, um, which still stands. Um, there's still, it's crumbling a little bit, but it's still there. 20 to 25,000 people could fit in this theater comfortably. So um, that's a big deal. Temple of Artemis, still some of the columns standing, some of the steps still there after thousands of years. This is not just like uh, a bunch of tents in the desert. At the same time as they were being established as a nation, Israel is coming out of Babylonian captivity. Okay? So when we hear the story of Israel and we hear the story of the tents up to um, David and, and Solomon and all of that, well, let's put it in context. They had stadiums seating 25,000 people at the same time. This is not just a bunch of dumb people in the sticks, okay? So think about that. Um, and, and they're at the center of the world trade. Uh, 281 BC, the city took on the official name of Ephesus at that point and became um, established as a port, major leading port city on trade routes for the next 900 years. Timeline of Ephesus again, that map shows you the expansion of um, the Roman Empire during the Pax Romana. That is uh, a big deal because it was during this time that the gospel of Jesus Christ came to a world all the known world was completely free, completely under a singular rule, and God put his footprint on timeline of history in the gospel. 29, uh, 129 B.C., Romans take control of the city. You have the Pax Romana um, following that. 17 B.C., a significant earthquake hits the area. Rome makes significant improvements into the city, dumps resources. Um, this would have been um, Caesar Augustus. He would have come along during this time, and he was, uh, as one of the first emperors, a major, uh, major influence on um, uh, architecture and aqueducts and establishing cities and paving roads and beautifying places, building temples. He was, he was um, significant in transforming the face of Ephesus and giving it, um, really, for Rome, uh, it, it was a hub. Uh, everybody who was somebody in Rome would have come through Ephesus, would have chilled in the town, gone to its marketplaces where you could get jewelry from everywhere, spices from everywhere, clothing from anywhere in the world, and they would have done this in open markets. Some of them covered in Rome had actually covered malls, way better than ours. Um, 
literally. So, Church of Ephesus was formed upon uh, Paul's arrival, 52 AD. Next, um, uh, there's this library of Celsus that was built there, um, 110 to 135 AD. It held over 12,000 plus scrolls. Um, if you're familiar with scrolls, we're pretty big. Um, how, how many uh, volumes in our library? Do you know here? Any need? Anybody? I don't even think it's 12,000 volumes in our library. Um, maybe it is. But these are scrolls, so it would have been bigger. So this was a significant building. And it says, basically, I'm at the center of the trade route. Everything's coming in here and going out of here. All the knowledge of the world would have been here. All the philosophies of the world would have been here. All the superstitions of the world would have been here. All the gods of the world embraced would have been right here. They would have had their own temples. They would have had their meeting places. Their idols would be sold in these marketplaces. Why, why that? So here, um, huge, huge theater. This is that uh, 25,000 um, seat theater. Um, they would have had mock battles, um, killed Christians, all kinds of stuff right down here. And that's still standing. You can go visit it. You can walk it around. You can sit in those seats still. The second and third century saw the probably the first novelist, Xenophon of Ephesus. They had the library. They had everything there. They had the, now the capability to move from scrolls to papyrus. Uh, in, in such a way that if you were wealthy, you could go buy one of Xenophon's books. This is, this is the world that um, the gospel came to. AD 262, the Goths sack the city. Theater gets an upgrade. The Romans pour more money into it. The, the, the streets uh, in Ephesus would have been lined with statues, lights, um, like lit candle, uh, candlelight lamplight all the way down the side of the street people would have been free to come and go in peace and prosperity you would have had parties you would have had events everything just like our life minus the automobiles and a little bit of technology 431 council of ephesus still um ephesus is established on the world stage in 431 a.d um 300 years after christ um or 400 years after Christ. So they come together under Theodosius II to uh, condemn a heresy, a Christological heresy that said Jesus Christ was not fully God. He was just a man that the God, Jesus, came and dwelt on, and then at his death he would have been removed so that God wouldn't die. He was trying to understand those things, but Scripture tells us that Jesus did die for us. And so that heresy was condemned with a council of a bunch of pastors from cities who would have been the head pastor or the bishop of the city where you had 10, 15, 20 churches meeting in homes all around the city. By the time of 431, you may have had some basilicas, is what they were called, large churches where they had large meeting places and they would have bat baptismal fonts and more of an established traditional program. So 614 begins um, a, a little bit of decline for Ephesus. Another significant earthquake comes that they really just can't recover from economically during that time. Rome has lost its major influence at that point. And then by 700, Ephesus is in clear decline. The harbor has become silted up. It's no longer as useful as it was. And the Ottoman Empire comes along, the fourth major empire that Ephesus as a city has seen. It comes along, the Muslims come in, and there are attacks. So that's the timeline, timeline of Ephesus. We started with 62 AD, the very beginning, or very center of that timeline. Now we've gone out and we've seen what God's doing in the world through people like um, Caesar Augustus, through people like Cyrus, through people like Alexander the Great, who offered to pay the, um, the, for the first remodel of the Temple Artemis, but the uh, Greeks and the people in Ephesus were very proud, and they said, no, we don't want your money or your empire's wealth. We'll do it ourselves. So that's kind of the picture, the overlay, that this message of the gospel is coming to. Not fairly, uh, not that much different than us. So how about the church of Ephesus? Paul, the first visit to Ephesus was in 50 to 52 AD. If you open your Bibles to Acts, you can read the story. You can read how Paul first came to this city with his 
crew of people, his entourage, the people who women followed him. He first came at the end of his second missionary journey. He drops into Ephesus, leaves some people there and says, I'm going back to Antioch. I'm going to tell the sending church how things are going and I'm going to support that. He leaves. Guy named Apollos, you've heard of him. He comes on the scene, comes to Ephesus, starts preaching about John's baptism. What happens next? Priscilla and Aquila, who have been left there, come to him and say, hey, listen, there's more. There's more. Jesus did come. The, the one that John was telling us about, he did come, and he died on the cross, and he rose again. And you can go see his tomb. And I can tell you, at least, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, there's at least 500 people that saw him, and you can get eyewitness testimony from him. And in that day, that would have been better than any of our news media, seriously. Um, so, Acts 18, and, and then, so, um, Apollos, a, a man mighty in the word, mighty with scriptures, knows the Old Testament well, now is, is, is learning about the New Testament pieces, uh, the stuff that we read and we love to soak up. He is learning what this means, and so he gets excited, jumps across the, the sea, and goes over to uh, Corinth and Achaia, and around that area, and begins to preach the gospel. So, he comes and does his thing, the end of Acts 18. Paul's second visit was on his third missionary journey. So he went and gave the news about how things were going, second missionary journey. We did this, this, and this. We went here and there. Comes back across um, Asia Minor through Turkey, modern-day Turkey. Comes back across and hits Ephesus, where his people are. They get together. So he comes into town, first of the week, goes to the synagogue, sits down and speaks. They ask him to stay, and, and there's not enough room. He moves to Tyrannus um, preaching hall, or teaching hall, basically, and at night, he, for two years, he teaches. Um, we heard a little bit of this history that Scott's been sharing with us, and it leads us up to that point. So he's teaching for two years in the hall of Tyrannus, and he is um, declaring the goodness of the gospel, all the stuff that he's rehearsed to them in the letter we just read. 80, 55 to 56, Paul is getting anxious to go to Macedonia, and he also really is, is kind of burning to go to Jerusalem. And so he's about ready to leave, but then something, something there's a little stir. Um, what happens in, in Acts, in the story? Do you, do you remember what happens? Paul comes in. During that two years, what's happening? All those um, philosophies that are coming together and establishing in this city, this like melting pot of philosophy and, and witchcraft, they're burning their books because they've found that Jesus is the true king, the God of the whole world, and his purposes are over all things, and so they're burning their books. Paul is really changing the whole um, landscape of what's going on because of the message of the gospel. People are being changed and transformed in such a way that Demetrius, the silversmith, who makes his living by making um, gods, idols, for uh, replicas for home purchase and use in your home of the goddess um, Artemis. She would have been a fertility goddess. Um, in, in a Roman tongue, it would have been goddess Diana. And they, they said, hey, look, they're disrupting our whole way of life, our trade. We're not going to have any jobs. They're going to ruin things for us. We need, to, we need to make these people pay. They cause a major uprising. They drag Paul and some of the others into the marketplace. And they, for hours, are chanting, um, well, at, at first, they're not even sure what's going on. Some people are saying, who is this? What's going on? Um, and then finally, um, there's, some, there's a magistrate that come in, comes in. They have a little bit of a um, back-and-forth dialogue. And then somebody starts chanting, great is Diana, or Diana of, or great is the god of Artemis uh, of the Ephesians. So they're chanting this for two hours as if it helps. At the end, the magistrates say, hey, look, we can't, we can't have this. Rome will know about this within two days. Someone will be uh, here. Somebody will know, and we're going to have, we're going to have problems. We don't want that. Go, go to your places. We'll deal with this. And so Paul goes and leaves. He says uh, goodbye to the church, and he gets out of town because he is the face of this problem. <coughs> Eighty fifty-seven. Paul finishes his third missionary journey, meets the elders, like we heard last week, on the shore of Miletus, talks to the pastors of the church of Ephesus on the shore, prays with them, weeps with them, and heads to Jerusalem for the end of his missionary journey. 62, Paul writes Ephesians from prison in Rome because we all know the story. He went to Jerusalem. He got in trouble there 
because people were going to kill him. They said, we're not going to eat until we kill Paul. And there's this uprising. The Romans come in, grab him, take him away. He gets shipped off to Rome because he makes his appeal to Caesar. He's in prison, writes Ephesus, or writes Ephesians. Next, what happens? Um, He's actually released from prison um, around 63, 64. He writes, before he's released, writes 1st and 2nd Timothy to Timothy, his son in the faith, and says, you need to go to Ephesus, and you need to set up leaders, rulers in Ephesus, these elders who are to shepherd the church. And so um, he sends Timothy. Timothy goes, and, and what that tells us is that that means the church is growing. There's expansion. Timothy is now going to a region where the church is growing, and they need more leaders. So Timothy gives these qualifications of what a leader is to be, goes and helps this church along, teaches them. Okay, 65, 67, Paul's actually released and gets caught again and martyred. Um, John the Apostle uh, would have been uh, one of the next pastors after Timothy. 75 to 90, he would have been in Ephesus pastoring. During that time, he would have been exiled by Roman decree. Uh, Whoever was emperor at that time would have exiled him to Patmos and said, you are no longer allowed to preach, you're exiled. At the end of that emperor's reign, when he dies or gets, in a lot of cases, stabbed in the back in, in Rome, then those prisoners would have been let go. That at that point, John would have been removed uh, or returned to Ephesus, and he died at the turn of the century. But he would have written that second letter to the Ephesians, the one we find in Revelation. So um, he dies in Ephesus, and, and then several years later, the Council of Ephesus. Church is still established. The church is still firm. Timeline of our church. Um, just a second. Let's rehearse a little bit of what God is doing with the history of the church of Ephesus. Influential as a church in Ephesus were for well over 430 years. Well over. Up until probably the 7th century, there was an established church in Ephesus. Our church. 1897, North Church became a congregation. 1925, City Church was started. 1960, both North and City Church came here, right in this building, right? You all know some of that history. We're 119 years in, we're not done. So what does this whole story have to do with us right now? What does God willing to, by his grace, put a footprint on the timeline of history through a big city, Ephesus, and specifically through his church planted in that city. What is he going to do with us? All right. Take a quick look first before we conclude with the history of Ephesus. It's established as a church probably between 52 and 54 A.D. Forty years later, he gets a reminder from Revelation. The church uh, of Ephesus is specifically addressed in the book of Revelation. Um, The churches in the known world, the churches in that area, to each of the bishops, each of the big body gatherings that would have met periodically probably through the year, all as one assembly, but most likely met in small assemblies um, throughout a city. Each of these churches got a letter in Revelation. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, and this is in chapter 2, 1 and following, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil. We know that by 431, they were still condemning heresy. But you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. Bound, uh, found them false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. And this is John writing this, so there's persecution, and John's saying, you, you know, you're sticking it out. That's great. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you, and I will remove the lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you have the work, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
The one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So what can we learn from uh, this overview? What can we learn from this about God? What does it teach us about him? What does it say about a holy God? God's timing is perfect. Cyrus, example one. God's timing is perfect. Before Cyrus came on the world stage, God was establishing a proud city that needed to be a prominent place in the world so that the gospel goes to the globe. God's working in time and history to build his church is without question. God's glory will be put on display through his church. God is willing to use thousands of years to allow society to be built and then fade from history in order to spread the gospel to the edges of the earth. God is patient. He is patient with his church. He is 400 years patient so that a heresy can be condemned. He is patient. God is holy, and he will do what he promises, i.e., first example in Scripture, Adam and Eve. He said, you will die, and they did several hundred years later. He said, I will remove this candlestick if you leave your first love, and they did, and it's been removed. But the gospel didn't get removed. It just moved. And God's using that here. So what can we then learn from this overview? What can we learn about what God's doing in this world? We can trust a sovereign God who orders the activities of godless kings like Cyrus, Alexander the Great, and Caesar Augustus, and others. We can endure through hardship when our faith is tested when we are persecuted, when we're called atheists because everyone worships something they can see and our God doesn't exist, doesn't have a picture. That's what they were being called then. We can enjoy the power of God in Christ, our head through the Holy Spirit he's given to us, a seal unto the day of redemption, the one who is powerfully at work in us to finish the work he started. We can have historical impact and we can take up our first love just as the Ephesians were called to do. What is the first love? We ended Ephesians as we read. And Paul reminds them what their first love is. The love of God in Christ who would redeem us. Who would give us himself to death so that we could be brought to life. And we could be restored and we could be made new. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the central love that we must have. We've got to love our Savior We've got to worship our king. We've got to take up his message. We are now ambassadors of Jesus Christ. Just like Paul said, I'm an ambassador in chains. First Corinthians, we've been called to be ambassadors, reconcilers of people to God. That's our ministry. That's who we are. That's who we're to be. We can't leave it. What can we do in light of God's divine work and plan? What does this ask us of gospel-shaped people on mission in our world? So it's not just three words we use. We can live worthy of the gospel. Ephesians called us to that. We can live worthy of this gospel of grace. We can join the mission of God to have the glory of God on display through gospel-informed people on mission in our world. We can learn from the warnings of Revelation not to stay, not to stray from our first love. This is the marvelous gospel of grace that we've been given. We can dwell together in unity because we have one Father, one Lord, and one Spirit. We can be kind to one another by forgiving one another through an appropriate understanding of the gospel because Jesus took all of my sin into account. He took it on himself. He took the blame for it, the condemnation for it, which was death, and he forgave me. And so now, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I can forgive you. And you can forgive me. Because the gospel informs who we are as people. We can dwell together in unity. We can forgive one another. We can get our hands dirty and teach the thief to steal no more. To work with his hands. We can get dirty next to someone who's in sin. And we can teach them what it means to be someone who is actually giving back to society and we can give them a tool and we can say now you can have money to give to those who have need we can have um, 
fathers who love their wives with gospel love that dies so that she can be radiant. We can have wives who take on the heart and submission of Jesus Christ who submitted himself, although perfectly God, fully God, submitted himself to the will of the Father to die for us. So wives, you can submit to your husbands a far lesser authority, a far more um, faulty authority because of Christ and the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. Children, you can obey your parents because of the gospel. We can bear with one another in love because this is the worthy call of the gospel in being a workmanship created by God in Christ Jesus for good works. We can say no to filthy talk, crude joking, sexual immorality, impurity, by renewing our minds through the power of the gospel. Say no to this world's temptations on your phone and your tablet and your computer screen because of the gospel. You can say no to this world's temptations of finding your security and control and in money and in finance and in your job and in your ability to control a, an organization. You can lose track of all of those things because you've placed the gospel at the center of your life. You can be a master who has servants, an employer who has employees, and you can do it really well because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And stop your threatening. You can be a father who doesn't provoke your children to wrath because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have to fall in love with the first love, the gospel, that Jesus would die on my behalf and give me life. Listen as I read again that passage, Ephesians 1, 15 to 23, and this, with this we'll close. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards the saints, I do not cease to give thanks to you, remembering you, EMB, in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened so that you may know what is the hope to which you've been called in Christ. What are the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints in Christ? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe through the Holy Spirit, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places, far above all rule, every single one that this world has ever seen, far above every authority in heaven and on earth, far above every power, weak or strong, far above every dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, God did this, and gave him, Christ, as head over all things to his church, that's us. We have been given Christ for God's glory, and now he has set him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We are the body of Christ. Christ has been given to us as head. He is rule over all things, and we with him are rulers. We with him are experiencing some of the positional goodness of the gospel. We with him are seeing the power of God in our lives as we say no to sin and we say yes to God. As we put off the old man and no longer do those things, as we attempt faultingly and failingly to put on the new man in relationship to our relationships around us, our, our wives, our, our, our husbands, our children, our friends, our neighbors. Those are tough sometimes. But it's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that I've been transformed. I have the spirit of God in me that makes that relationship work. That transforms, that, that puts us as lights in this world so that we can go then be light and expose things and bring things to light. Arise, O sleeper. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what we cannot leave. We've got to love it so that our 119 years, Lord willing, can be a whole lot more. And that when the persecution comes, we can stay steadfast. And when you've got a dirty, stinky person next to you that you're trying to teach how not to be a thief anymore, you can trust Jesus. And when you're self-righteous and you finally see it, you can turn again to the gospel and be transformed and changed. We have got to never leave our first love the gospel of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord. Let's pray.
God, we love you. We thank you for what you'll do here with the gospel as we begin to see it in Ephesians. I pray that you give us a context through which to um, see all of what you're going to show us in the next months as we look into Ephesians, as we look into the gospel of our salvation. The good news that you would love us even while we were sinners, that you would come and you would crush the head of the serpent for me, that you would do this and you would fill me with a spirit and seal me until the day of redemption so that I might be blameless. God, I thank you for what you'll do through the power of the gospel. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed. Thanks.